Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. If wars can be started by lies, they can be stopped by truth. These are the words of Julian Assange, a journalist who is being persecuted for exposing U.S. war crimes and sabotage around the world by doing what many journalists do, publishing documents leaked by whistleblowers. The leaks Assange published through WikiLeaks helped radicalize a generation by informing the general public about the truth of what their government was doing in their name. The Iraq war log showed the reality of the criminal U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq. The collateral murder video showed an Apache helicopter mowing down journalists and then firing at a rescue vehicle as soldiers joked. There was also the State Department cables that revealed the interference carried out by U.S. diplomats in embassies around the world. So it's no surprise that there's been a propaganda campaign against Assange, with both the U.S. government and corporate media demonizing him as a criminal deserving of death. To discuss the war on whistleblowers in the context of the Assange case and how the case against him poses a threat to journalism everywhere, I'm joined by Kevin Gastola, managing editor of Shadowproof, co-host of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast, and author of the newly published book, Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange. Kevin is one of the only journalists who's been covering it all since the beginning, from WikiLeaks and the prosecution of Chelsea Manning to attacks on whistleblowers and the trial of Assange, warning all along of the implications for press freedom if the U.S. has its way. But before we jump into it, if you appreciate this show, you can help it grow by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to talk with you. It's good to have you on. I mean, obviously, you and I host a show together, Unauthorized Disclosure, just using this as a chance to plug that. Uh, But this is the first time I've had you on Dispatches, so that's very exciting. And Um, it's a a great opportunity. I'm, I'm pleased to be able to share the book. Well, so I, I, before we get started, I thought it might be cool to just hear from you for a moment, because obviously, like, a lot of people know, you know, the name Julian Assange, and we're going to get into the meat of it. But I think that this book, of course, is about Assange, but I also think you're sort of like an interesting part of it because of your journalistic trajectory and basically your your journalistic career it really started out in many ways, or at least the first time I came to know who you were was actually, I think it was you covering like the first round of WikiLeaks. Um, and you've really been on the story harder than anybody else has. In some cases, there's been times where there's been court hearings, whether for Chelsea Manning or for Julian Assange, where you are one of like a handful or the only journalist there. So before we get into your book, which by the way, I'll say it again, is called Guilty of Journalism um, and everybody should go get a copy. But before we go into your book and the specifics, can you maybe talk a little bit about, you know, how did you end up spending more than a decade at this point as a journalist focusing on the persecution of whistleblowers, and of course now Assange specifically, and why? What is it that attracted you to that issue in particular to the point where you've kind of become like an expert on it? Yeah, and as a big story, I mean, I the first time that I was getting any distinction was through some of the, I call them prestige media in the book, of like having PBS, for example, write an actual story about how the media wasn't covering the U.S. court-martial against Chelsea Manning, and that I and a few others were the only people that were there in the courtroom, and how I even they even got more specific. I, I had put this in the book. This is during the 2012 election, and we all know the way media works. All these reporters, they go on the campaign trail with all the candidates. They're covering the polls, and meanwhile, we have this important hearing happening in the case during a point in the 2012 election, presidential election, and uh, news is broken about it. And there's nobody there in the room other than us to cover the development. So uh, I started doing this work right away uh, because I had the privilege to work as an intern. And I mean that, I'm not just uh, saying that. Uh, I learned so much working in a newsroom at The Nation magazine and I got to work under Greg Mitchell, who was a, their contributor, who was regularly following developments with WikiLeaks. And part of what was nice with this book is it's not a memoir, but 
at least in the introduction, I get to follow my development as a journalist and, and share it because like you say, it is intertwined in the coverage that I've done of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning, et cetera. And so I immediately was writing my own stories about particularly the U.S. diplomatic cables. There were so many scoops and this was over 250,000 cables in total when we were all said and done. And I don't even believe that we've told the last story that could be told from those documents just because there's so many of them. But there were numerous cables that I was finding. I'd write my own stories. I'd flesh them out and do reporting that went beyond the kind of gossip that we were getting from the U.S. media. I think one way you can indict the media is in their failure to cover the content of the WikiLeaks cables. You can indict them for their character attacks on Julian Assange, but you can also indict them for publishing stories that made it seem like WikiLeaks was like TMZ or something because they published these cables <laughs> and they would run with these headlines like, uh, like, like Colonel Gaddafi is having an affair with his nurse or something like that. <laughs> and you would think that these cables had nothing of substance in there, which, you know, when you think about it, that might be the intent of like making people bored with them and feel like they're just uh, sensational garbage Goss that you don't need to. Yeah, yeah, gossip. Yeah, as I said. Uh, so I, I do work on this. And as I cover these documents and I have these opportunities to distinguish myself as a reporter, I did get hired to work for a progressive website called Fire Dog Lake. Jane Hampshire, who was a movie producer, ran this organization. She founded it in the mid-2000s. It was part of what they called the Net Roots. You might remember it, Rania, because we went to things like the Net Roots Nation Conference, which is far and beyond uh, what, what it used to be. It used to actually be something that was about journalism and, and independent media. And now it's just a conference for the Democratic Party to yeah. you know, have some sort of weird connection with their base, if you could even call it that. Um, but they, they basically show up to pander to their base. And uh, and I was hired and I had my own column. I took over for um, Marcy Wheeler and I just developed the space into a national security and civil liberties section that not only covered legal issues and questions from the global war on terrorism related to the way that like the policies were applied so that they were repressing individuals in the country. But I was bringing in grassroots protests. I covered the Occupy movement. I think that's a really important part of the story. Um, and then going onward, I was introduced to these Espionage Act prosecutions that went beyond Chelsea Manning, introduced to whistleblowers like CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou, NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake. And I got to see the bigger picture, and then I understood very clearly what advocates would tell me, which is that the war on whistleblowers was not just about stopping leaks of classified information uh, to though uh, from those people but it was also a war on journalists it was a war on uh our ability to be able to have knowledge of what our government was doing in our name and so from then on i continued to follow this story and i i, I suppose having covered chelsea manning's court martial you know naturally i couldn't abandon the story i have to come back to julian assange as the wikileaks editor-in-chief who still finds himself being persecuted and I have to cover what's happening. And then of course, as somebody who's a journalist who does this kind of work and can see the slippery slope and how it, it wouldn't stop with Julian Assange. It would expand to me potentially as a target, depending on the kind of work or people who are like me would be targeted because I think what is evident is when you recognize the stakes of this case you understand that Julian Assange might be a unique figure in the way that the United States is able to be hostile and go after him. And there may be something different about what he did. Uh, and they were afraid of this newer media organization that was being constructed. But that being said, this doesn't stop with him. If they are successful in uh, convicting him in a courtroom, uh, and, and you know that goes beyond the fact that they've already made an example of him. But if they are successful in convicting him in a courtroom, 
of these Espionage Act offenses or even the hacking offense, which is not a hacking offense. It's just a conspiracy to commit a computer intrusion. But people usually lazily call it a hacking offense. If they're successful, then it's going to expand to other journalists. And those journalists who are most under threat of being prosecuted or being targeted are people who are independent journalists who don't have institutional support. They don't work in the New York Times or the Post, or they don't work at the CNN and have lawyers who can haggle with Justice Department prosecutors over subpoenas. These are people who the FBI show up to your home and there's nothing you can do to stop them from rifling through your electronics. Uh, there's nothing to do that you can do to stop them from making you an example. Yeah, I mean, there's. I want to get into the charges against Assange and a bit more into what you're talking about. But first, I think it's important to remind people as well as maybe even tell people, because I think for some of our longer, younger audience, they might not even be aware. Can you maybe walk us through some of the most significant leaks that came from WikiLeaks? I mean, starting with the, raw, the, the Iraq war logs. And then, of course, we had the collateral murder video. You mentioned the State Department cables. I mean, like I said, many people have forgotten these or because this happened. I mean, probably I think the first leaks came out like 13 years ago at this point, something like that. Um, and then, of course, younger people might not know. Um, and the Iraq war logs actually did play this really significant role in the Iraqi government's decision to deny uh, U.S. soldiers immun immunity from prosecution, if that occupation by the U.S. Continue, continued beyond 2011. And then, of course, that uh, prompted President Obama to, to of course, re refuse to expose U.S. soldiers to potential liability. And, and it forced him to actually end up withdrawing all troops, which effectively, you know, I guess technically ended the Iraq war, even though a kind of war has still continued. Yeah. But I guess all that's to say, could you walk us through some of the most significant group of leaks that came out and why they were so significant. Yeah. And in fact, that communications log that you're referring to that ended up being the reason why the Iraq government broke off the status of forces agreement with the United States, uh, because what Obama was demanding was that there would be immunity for soldiers from prosecutions and the Iraq government was not willing to grant it. So the U.S. government did not feel that they could, or Barack Obama did not feel like it was appropriate to leave a residual force. And so he did abide by the withdrawal date that, by the way, was set by the Bush administration. Um, and it was not the Obama administration that set that date to withdraw. It's actually kind of similar to what happened in Afghanistan with Trump and then Biden withdrawing the forces based on the timeline that the Trump administration had set. Uh, and that communications log, I actually point out in the book, I found that. I identified that document. And then because it got picked up by Glenn Greenwald um, and uh, then it was covered by Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! and some other people, it started gaining traction. And then before we knew it, uh, that, that raid, that particular raid that was highlighted in which there were people who were murdered by U.S. troops that massacre ended up playing a critical role in the decision to uh, withdraw all of the U.S. forces. But obviously, there is the Iraq war log documents, which are at issue in this case. Um, and then there's the collateral murder video, which the U.S. government is so ashamed of, they wouldn't even charge Julian Assange with releasing it, even though they charged Chelsea Manning with its disclosure. But they want to keep that video out of the courtroom because of what it shows. Uh, but back to the Iraq war logs, uh, we know that 15,000 civilian deaths, at least, at least 15,000 civilian deaths were uncovered. The Iraq Body Count Project had, has done critical work examining the data in the Iraq war log documents. I would encourage people to check out their work that they do as a project. Um, they've been doing some really good uh, work that has been timed to the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Uh, but uh, this, these documents, the Iraq war logs, showed what Patrick Coburn called uh, the small change of war. He said that in testifying in Assange's defense during the extradition proceedings. And uh, you look at these documents and you get to find things like uh, the way in which soldiers were told that they uh, should not 
uh, pursue accountability if they find out that Iraqi police or Iraqi security forces were engaged in torture. There's an actual order in the documents called Frago 242, and it was a it was a look the other way. It was a keep your head down. We don't need to worry about being involved in human rights abuses. And so um, that's another example. Um, and of course, the documents show uh, evidence of, of torture. Um, they show uh, evidence of people being rounded up and put in, in, in detention. And you get to see what was really happening when it came to the insurgency and uh, trying to suppress that insurgency. Yeah. And of course, I got to say, like, as a journalist myself, and I'm sure you can relate to this even more than most because you 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 actually have like found things first before anybody else is whenever it comes to any story I'm covering, one of the first things I always do is I go look and I go search in WikiLeaks. Um, That's how much is in there. That's how much is useful when it comes to what was leaked. Uh, Until this day, we know that no one has been killed because of what's been put out by WikiLeaks. But I wanted to ask you, you know, Trump did, of course, continue the prosecution of Assange, uh, and then Biden has followed suit. But the attack on whistleblowers and then on a publisher like Assange, that actually started under Obama, specifically the attack on whistleblowers. And I want to quote you. In your book, you write, the Obama administration cast itself as the most transparent administration ever while refining a system of secrecy that aided officials in concealing military matters and national security programs. It stymied reform of the Freedom of Information Act and censored or withheld a record number of files from disclosure. It pursued federal lawsuits to block the release of photos showing alleged torture and abuse, documents related to kill lists for extrajudicial killings of alleged terrorism suspects, and videos of forced feedings of prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. While wielding the Espionage Act of of 1917 to prosecute more individuals for unauthorized disclosures than all previous presidential administrations combined— the Obama administration instituted an insider threat program that further discouraged whistleblowers from risking their livelihoods to expose corruption. Thanks to Obama, Trump did not have to engage in a power grab to amass the authority to undermine civil liberties and trample over human rights. And I know that was a mouthful, but I think that's really, really important because, you know, this is a very bipartisan effort, but it sort of comes out of a certain era that ironically, started under a president who got elected for being not George W. Bush. (laughs) And then, you know, and so I'm just curious if you have anything to add to that or if you'd like to elaborate a bit on the importance of the Obama administration, the Obama era in, um, I guess, provoking the ongoing attack on whistleblowers that you've been covering for the last decade. Well, what we see is this Con- this continuity, the the continuity is stark, and I think usually when you want to know if you're doing journalism that targets power adequately and brings attention to something that is a systemic or pressing issue, and not just some kind of a partisan battle, you've got to find where those institutions are and what they're invested in perpetuating. And what you see here is that yes. The national security state is hugely invested in this as a priority of controlling the free flow of information. And when Barack Obama was elected, what you had was finally people being able to benefit from the transformation that had occurred as a result of digital technology. And you don't have to take this from me. There were Obama officials themselves. There were national security people themselves who were seeing that they were more vulnerable than ever because there were individual employees who could easily take and download hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of files and put them on a CD, which is what Chelsea Manning did, or they could put it on a thumb drive, or maybe they could just print out papers. And the U.S. government realized after Chelsea Manning, well, let me say the national security state realized after that they needed to develop tracking mechanisms so that they could basically do constant surveillance of everyone who is an employee or a contractor. So right now, as you and I have this discussion, there are people who, even when they are not on the job at work, 
are probably having their communications subject to scrutiny by someone that works in their office or who has some role in overseeing them in order to protect the so-called security of the United States. But what we should read when we hear that phrase is, in order to ensure that those individuals don't become dissenters who challenge the policies of the government. And uh, I don't have a problem if people go through proper channels and become whistleblowers, uh, but what you hear all the time from people who are in government is that there's a right way to whistleblow and there's a wrong way to blow the whistle. And they're always trying to get people to go to Congress or they're saying, go to this committee or go to your superior. Because then what that means is they have the chance to be able to suppress those people and prevent them from having an impact that forces a change. The kind of changes, and even though they were modest reforms, they were changes. When we saw Edward Snowden come forward and he took off for Hong Kong and he was in exile, and then we saw the reaction and the fallout, it created the political moment where Congress had to pass something in order to deal with the outrage, in order to deal with the lack of legitimacy they had now because mass surveillance programs had been exposed. Well, that's what they want to avoid. And that's what Obama's administration was all about was establishing this vast, um, which I write about in the book, that we know some details based on some of uh, uh, some writing and documents that Chelsea Manning exposed about how she was used as an example. Um, but th this, this program, this insider threat program, what it does is very Stasi-like. I mean, it really is about having um, a way to pit people within these agencies against each other. And you actually can get a reward. At one point or another, you could get a reward for ratting out your colleague to a supervisor. If you turned in someone who you thought was a spy, engaged in espionage, or even just a leaker, you could get a payout for turning in that information. It gave people an incentive to snoop on others and see if they were talking to the press. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And then, you know, with the issue of the Espionage Act, which, as you know, I mentioned when I was quoting you earlier, Obama uh, did more Espionage Act prosecutions than all presidents combined, which is just wild. Walk us through some of the Espionage Act prosecutions from Obama to Trump. And then more importantly, I guess, why does it matter in the Assange case? Each Espionage Act case that was brought by Obama, and then also let's include the ones that come from President Donald Trump's era, they all stack on each other. What I do in the chapter that I go through these cases, uh, where I go through these cases is to show that you see elements of law being altered just enough so that it makes it easier for prosecutors to foreclose any chance of a defense that you might have if you are in that courtroom. I mean, a key thing is, and this actually goes all the way back to Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg's case, uh, who was really kind enough to endorse my book and has given me some really nice praise. In his case, he tells the story of how he went on trial. He was ready to tell the courtroom why he had done what he did, why he turned to the press and revealed the Pentagon Papers, which played a role in ending the war in Vietnam. And the prosecutor objects and the judge stops him and he says, you can't answer that question. And he was not allowed to tell the courtroom why he did what he did. And that is the case for all Espionage Act prosecutions, that you cannot give your motivation. So, you know, it's it's been likened to when somebody steals a loaf of bread and they know that they've committed a crime, but their defense is, if I didn't steal that loaf of bread, my son or my daughter was going to go hungry. So I needed to feed my child. And that's why I stole that loaf of bread because that's supposed to like help alter the amount of punishment that you receive for that crime. Hopefully it breathes some sympathy that like that had to be done for your survival. Uh, this was what David Coombs used as an example when he was defending Chelsea Manning in the court martial. And so you see these examples in the war logs or the cables of of, of criminality and abuse. And, and, and we should be able to make a necessity defense. Uh, somebody who's in a, a trial as a whistleblower should be able to make a necessity defense. But more specifically, 
each of these cases, you have Thomas Drake, who was an NSA mm-hmm. whistleblower. Um, that's inherited by the Obama administration. Um, that case collapses, but they try to prevent him from being able to use the word whistleblower in the courtroom. And then you've got uh, John Kiriakou as a CIA whistleblower, and that one ends unpredictably in a plea agreement under Obama. But um, what they are able to do is basically lower some of the burden of of proof. And, and then you have uh, one case that's not, he's not really a, a whistleblower, but he is a media source. It's Stephen Kim, and he's prosecuted under the Espionage Act for giving uh, information to James Rosen at Fox News. And as a, as a State Department employee, they, they turn around and uh, they, again, make it easier for the prosecutors to go after him. And that's also where we see in the FBI's affidavit, the words pop up that James Rosen, who's a Fox News reporter at that time, was an aider, a better, and a co-conspirator of a leak, which got people concerned that they were thinking about whether they would have a case to bring against a journalist in addition to Stephen Kim. And so then you proceed onward. Uh, Daniel Hale is a good example. That's, that is an Obama era case kind of, but he wasn't, he was not indicted. Um, and he exposed uh, the drone papers. Uh, that was what was published by the intercept. He exposed the drone program. I um, mean, he's in prison right now. And I, I write about, the way that he's being treated. And so when you, I'll stop here and then you can decide if you want to get into any more specifics with some of these cases. But what we see is in the trial with the Espionage Act, uh, if if you are put through a trial in a courtroom, you see that each of those cases add up and they keep making it easier and easier for a prosecutor to go after the individual that has been Indicted. So now we're at Julian Assange. Well, all of this work has already been done by prosecutors to build up case law to make it easier to go after. Even though this is an unprecedented case, it's actually not that difficult for them to make their argument about singling out Julian Assange. And then you look at the way that these people who have been prosecuted under the Espionage Act, whether it's uh, or the way they've been jailed and imprisoned. Uh, I think of examples like Reality Winner or Daniel Hale. You see how Julian Assange would be treated if he was put in prison in the United States. Right. And then I want to go also to the media reaction. And this is, we can talk more about the media reaction later to Assange specifically. But you write that even when prestige media sent reporters or producers to help them track developments, and here you're talking about the Chelsea Manning trial. Uh, They found the court-martial to be either too dull or too complex. One Washington Post reporter turned to me multiple times with questions because they were not certain of what was said in court. A CNN producer gained notoriety for constantly sleeping in the Fort Meade Media Center while proceedings were broadcast. And then on top of that, you mentioned how the New York Times didn't even send a reporter to cover Manning's trial, which is, uh, I actually didn't know that. That's pretty, or I forgot. But with that in mind, you know, what was the initial reaction of journalists, of media organizations, uh, these press freedom and civil liberties groups to WikiLeaks and to Assange before he was being prosecuted. And how did that change over time? Yeah. Uh, So uh, the New York Times did send a reporter, uh, but then they sent somebody who hadn't been following the proceedings and then they published an incorrect story about the aiding the enemy charge. I write about this in the book. You're correct that up until a certain point, there had been no New York Times reporter. And then they finally sent somebody. And it was like a, a an intern or someone who was an unknown. And, and you actually and like pushed corrected a correction. Them. Yeah, they had to make a correction because you pointed out that what they said was not accurate. Yeah, I fought for several days to get them to change it. And at first, they wouldn't uh, address the integrity of their story. They corrected like a minor detail related to a date that I had figured out was incorrect. <laughs> And then they came back to it two or three days later. They said, all right, yeah, we shouldn't have said this because what they said was that prosecutors had proven basically, or, or it was something to like, oh, no, I know what it was. The judge had determined that Chelsea Manning had aided the enemy. I said, well, no, that's not what happened. Um, she just found that there wasn't enough evidence to dismiss the charge against her. And so we're going to proceed onward with this. And so you can't print that. And, uh, 
eventually they had their top high-ranking senior national security reporter, Charlie Savage, come to some of the proceedings, and they did take it seriously. But that was after they were called out by Margaret Sullivan when they still had a public editor, and uh, she gained all this attention. So the media's reaction to Julian Assange, I mean, it depends on when you take it, but let's go all the way back to this time when we're talking about these charges that are in this case. So in 2010 and 2011, what stands out to me, and uh, Daniel Ellsberg spoke to me about this, uh, but this is also the one that I always remember as the prime example of media hostility, is that at the time you had this column that was printed by executive editor of the New York Times, Bill Keller, that singles out Julian Assange as basically some kind of a like bag lady. It talks about how there's smelly socks that are left around the floor. And they paint this picture of the kind of anarchist hacker. They demonize him. It, It basically isolates him. And it becomes this like justification to not treat him as a collaborator. They like to talk about Julian Assange as if he's the source. And I do believe I write at some point in the book that this doesn't make any sense because he's not the originator of the documents. You can't call Julian Assange the source, but they like to say he's the source because he gave them the documents. Uh, But Chelsea Manning's the source. That's the person who was punished and prosecuted. She's the whistleblower. Julian Assange is the publisher who works at the media organization. It doesn't make any logical sense to treat him as the source. You were brought in at, into a media coalition, the New York Times was, and so was The Guardian and Der Spiegel, Le Monde, and some of these other organizations were invited to have access to this material. And it's actually now very common. There are a lot of these collaborative partnerships on documents that are similar to what WikiLeaks did, which was unprecedented at the time, because it basically said, we aren't going to compete against each other. We think it would be better to expand our reach and the impact of these uh, documents by each working on what we think is important from these sets of documents. But they went after and they made him seem like a cartoon. And then I think that helped the U.S. government tremendously, because then going forward, without getting into the details, we have the sexual allegations that come out of Sweden. That becomes the pretext for keeping him in house arrest. And then he uh, seeks asylum in the Ecuador embassy. And then having sought asylum in the Ecuador embassy, he's now there and lives there for uh, the entire time until he is forced out after a pressure campaign, uh, which Mike Pompeo has taken credit for. He takes credit for it in his memoir, The Never Give an Inch. I don't know if I should call it a memoir. It's his book that he wrote that he's trying to get people to believe that he's someone who should be the next president of the United States. Uh, So there's a lot of like, but he opens up and he boasts, he says, I'm a risk taker. I was there at the CIA and I said, you know, John Brennan and all of them, they weren't taking enough risks. But when I was there, I was ready. And I told everyone, we're going to take risks. This is the, I just, I went through some of his book. I'm sorry I had to, but I had to figure. So you did it so the rest of us don't have to. I did a public service. We thank you. Yeah. And I read two pages that he wrote about WikiLeaks where he basically calls Julian Assange a rapist for the disclosure of the Vault 7 materials. He says that, he says that Julian Assange raped the United States government. Um, (laughs) And then he said, he said, when this first happened, I felt that the U.S. government had been raped because they published these Vault 7 materials that, for people who don't know, were about uh, the offensive cyber warfare capabilities, the arsenal that the CIA has for cyber warfare. And then he goes, and as it turned out, it did as a result of an accused rapist, Julian Assange, who then he goes on to write all of this stuff about Julian Assange. Um, But... But yeah, so then he was there and he's forced out and he goes into detention. And and so that was, you know, that's how everything unfolded. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up the uh, Ecuadorian embassy because, you know, Assange ends up in the Ecuadorian embassy in the UK. Um, and there was a lot going on from the CIA end of things, from the FBI end of things. 
Can you talk about the role of the CIA and FBI and what they were doing, as well as some certain private companies during the time that Julian Assange is holed up in the embassy? And that went on for how many years? It was like a it was like eight years or something. Am I mistaken saying that seven or eight years that he was? Yeah. So he's in the embassy from 2012 to 2019. Um, and yeah, then okay. in the last two years, from 2017 to uh, 2019 is when it really becomes almost impossible to live uh, and function. I mean, they are actually working on driving him mad. They're hoping that he leaves. And he, they what they wanted was Julian Assange to abandon his asylum, exit the embassy, give himself up, and be arrested by authorities. Oh, and I know what I was trying to say. And then I got off on some tangent. <laughs> what I wanted to make clear was that the um, the the sexual allegations, it, it needs to be said that the sexual allegations that were brought against him is why he enters the embassy. And so then he's there. And basically, the U.S. government treats him as a fugitive, and they don't recognize the institution of asylum, even though they would if we were talking about a rival power like China or um, Russia, like if they welcomed uh, like if, if the U.S. welcomed a Russian or they welcomed a Chinese person in, as I think they have done before, um, then they would give them asylum and they would want Russia and China to respect it. But um, in this instance, they did not extend it or allow that it had been extended to Julian Assange by Rafael Correa when he was the president of Ecuador. And so um, that became the pretext for arresting Julian Assange, because when he leaves the embassy, um, when he's when he's thrown out by Ecuador in 2019 in April, they say that he's being arrested on a bail jumping charge. And that bail jumping charge comes from going to the Ecuador embassy and not, um, and essentially they're accusing him of resisting extradition to Sweden. So I just think that's an important point to make. But the role of the FBI and the CIA, the CIA's role is very abundantly clear, especially after a rare example of journalism by uh, uh, what I think is a, a, an establishment media organization. Uh, but usually you don't see them do this kind of work. Yahoo News did an absolutely important story on the plans, the war plans that were sketched allegedly by Mike Pompeo and others at the CIA. And if you believe this story based on over 30 sources, which Mike Pompeo actually threatened with prosecution on Megyn Kelly's show um, for, for talking to Michael Isakoff and the other Yahoo reporters, uh, that uh, if, you, if you believe what this says, they developed this disruption campaign to target WikiLeaks and pursue and go after individuals who were associates. And they wanted to pit people against each other. And they were authorized to hack into devices. They were authorized to plant uh, damaging information against people, again, to try and create uh, internal warfare and battles amongst people. Um, they were authorized also to apparently have these really open discussions about whether they could get Julian Assange and rendition him to the United States. They talk about kidnapping him in these meetings from the embassy. Uh, they talk about potentially poisoning him. So we're going all the way back to the CIA's uh, roots, where you know they tried to they they had plans to poison Patrice Lumumba in in the Congo. Now they're talking about poisoning Julian Assange in the embassy, and uh, it never got to this point. But what they did because these conversations were taking place where they were considering whether they had the authority to do they, they, they said like, you know, uh, so there's this UC global, it's a private security company that we believe was, we have a lot of evidence was working with the CIA. Um, and that was the organization, which is being run through. So basically UC global does all of the harassment and intimidation and surveillance. And then the CIA gets to deny any involvement by keeping their hands off, but they would be working through this as sort of like the intermediary. And, uh, you know, what we find is that uh, this organization, sorry, I've I'm, got I'm, I'm tongue-tied. It's just like, <laughs> this is like, there's like, there's, there, there's, you just, you like, you go around in circles with all of this and then yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You, you, you get lost. Um, what was I going to say here? Oh yeah. The justice department 
is spooked. They're like super concerned to find that the CIA is plotting all of these extrajudicial acts against Julian Assange. And they're afraid that Julian Assange is going to just pop up in a courtroom in Virginia in they're not going to have charges drafted and issued against Julian Assange. So as I point out in my book, um, it's my belief that as you look at the narrative, it's pretty clear that the Justice Department maybe I'm not saying they weren't going to charge Julian Assange, but I'm saying that the CIA virtually guaranteed that Julian Assange would be indicted by pursuing these extrajudicial actions against Julian Assange. And then I want to move on before we get to the actual arrest and prosecution of Assange. I want to talk about what happened during the 2016 election. And this is, I mean, obviously there's at this point, it's been many years. Assange is in the Ecuadorian embassy. The media hates him. Um, and they've been participating with the U.S. government and, you know, making him seem like just this horrible person, really just attacking the messenger kind of situation, right? Yeah. And then we have Russiagate and the election of Donald Trump. So how did Russiagate aid in the hatred of Assange? Well, what, what, what Russiagate did with the hatred of Assange is it gave particularly the Democrats a way to diminish WikiLeaks and Assange. But I I would argue that they really didn't need it. Uh, It just became very useful. But what you find in the Russiagate era is that the media really outs itself as one that's not terribly concerned about what's going to happen to Julian Assange and freedom of the press in general if this case is successful. Because when they're covering that first charge against Julian Assange, it was really uh, a test for the media. And they failed. They failed miserably. And when it first comes out that he is charged in April after he has been detained, he's been charged with a conspiracy to commit a computer intrusion. They run with this idea that he's accused of hacking They say, of course, journalists should never hack into military computer. We can't condone that. That's not acceptable journalist behavior. So they fall for it, and they don't see how this is the first charge, and coming soon will be the Espionage Act charges, even though I could see when I looked at the charge that those were basically, that was how that that, that mapped out. Um, But then you have CNN and other outlets, and you have individuals in the Democratic Party responding to the fact that Julian Assange has finally finally been charged by saying, okay, finally, we're going to be able to bring him to our country and we're going to be able to have the FBI interrogate him. We're going to get to the bottom of what Julian Assange's role was in the Trump-Russia collusion. And it's like that has nothing to do with this case. It's not even in the indictment. There isn't a single, I must emphasize, there isn't a single thing in the indictment that relates to Russia. There isn't even background information about Julian Assange as an individual. Like it doesn't say Julian Assange, the former WikiLeaks editor in chief and founder of WikiLeaks, is somebody who is a known associate of Russian intelligence, blah, 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 blah. It doesn't. It doesn't say that at all. It does say that he was the host of The World Tomorrow on Russia Today. It was a show that he had. He did like seven or eight episodes. It was an interview show. Um, It was not an RT show. It was a show that was done by Dartmouth Films. And like a lot of the content that aired on Russia Today, it was licensed to Russia Today and it aired on their network. And he had complete editorial control. But that was one other dimension of calling him a Russian propagandist And that was before Russiagate. But then with Russiagate, they kick it into high gear and they say all of this. And there's no evidence, really. I mean, I I, I go into some of what the Mueller investigation wrote about their efforts to confirm whether WikiLeaks was getting this information from a Russian cutout or someone from Russian intelligence. And they weren't able to find anything that could confirm it and help them bring charges against Julian Assange. Um, And so I think the media failed entirely when it came to that first charge and then going onward, because 
they just wanted to give the charges against Julian Assange that Russiagate intrigue. Yeah. And um, and uh, the last thing I'll say is um, because he's such a detestable figure, Joe Manchin says when he is responding to Julian Assange's charges uh, and him being arrested, he says, you know, I can't wait till we get to bring him back to U.S. soil. Well, Julian Assange is not a U.S. citizen, so I don't know what you're talking about when wow. he's, uh, he's saying really bizarrely that Julian Assange should be brought back to the United States. It's like they don't have any control <laughs> over U.S., but yes, they think they should have custody over Julian Assange. And I think that's the thing that's really alarming. It's like a projection of their view of the entire world, right? Is like all of the world is really American territory and everybody is subject to American law, even if they're not an American citizen. I think there was even a few times, I don't have examples with me, but I could swear that like there were times when you'd have idiot politicians accuse him of treason. And I'd be like, but he's not American. <laughs> like how you, that's, you can't, there's no treason if you're not American. And, and that's the important thing about the charge, too, is that he's charged with a U.S. law and he's not a U.S. citizen. He's mm -hmm. an Australian. And this is the Espionage Act. And uh, to my knowledge, I could be wrong, but I don't believe it's been used this way against a foreigner. Um, of course, now he's a foreign journalist, so I don't think it's been used. I am confident it's never been used against a foreign journalist in this manner. And so to do this... Uh, this, you know, is is just a point that's worth making in our conversation. It's like I think it really opens up a kind of arms race between the more powerful countries of the world. I mean, I truly believe that what the U.S. has done is open a kind of Pandora's box here by charging Julian Assange and saying and asserting that they can enforce laws against foreign journalists. Uh, I. I don't have a tough time seeing other regional powers, more powerful countries in the world do this to journalists who are Westerners, who seek to expose them, who seem to be part, who they accuse of being part of some kind of U.S. government agenda. Yeah, I mean, of course, and you know how the U.S. gets so upset and like loses its mind if anything happens to a U.S. citizen anywhere, in any adversary country, it becomes a very, very, very big deal, yet... It's like not a problem at all. And it's the U.S. that's in the right when it's the other way around. Um, now, I want to talk about the arrest and prosecution of Assange. I mean, we all saw those images out of the Ecuadorian embassy. Of course, this happened after the Ecuadorian government was no longer a left-leaning one. It was now more friendly to the U.S. Um, and was willing to basically like throw Julian Assange under the bus. Uh, and... The UK participated uh, in that as well, of course, because this happened at the Ecuadorian embassy in the UK. Um, and they're pretty iconic images of him being dragged out. But that, all that's to say, can you explain what exactly are the US government's charges and allegations against Assange? Basically, like their main arguments for prosecution. Their main arguments for prosecution is that he endangered informants or confidential human sources that were working for the United States. Uh, they've gone so minute in the documents that they've charged. That, like, they're not charging. So each of these sets of documents, the Iraq war logs, the Afghanistan war logs, one's you know, 400,000 documents, uh, the other one's um, 90,000 documents, then the cables are 250,000. They don't charge the entire set. They pick the ones that they think are most persuasive because that's all it takes to get you convicted under the Espionage Act. You take like a half dozen or so of those documents that they're willing to bring up. And so these relate to like China, Syria, um, and Iraq. And I think there might be an Afghanistan one, but you go in there and you say that this material exposed informants and that's their claim that, you know, it's that whole trite refrain that we heard in the media from Pentagon officials that WikiLeaks has blood on its hands. That was what you heard throughout 2010 in the, in the allegations against it. That was the effort to discredit the work that WikiLeaks was doing. And then there's the computer conspiracy charge. And that is that Julian Assange helped Chelsea Manning, uh, which 
doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't add up. This charge is the most flimsiest, but it is necessary. I must say it's necessary because what they're trying to do is create this conspiracy. I think that the prosecutors are some of the biggest conspiracy theorists in the government, frankly. Um, And their conspiracy theory is that Julian Assange basically enlisted Chelsea Manning to work on behalf of WikiLeaks and root around the U.S. military computer databases to find information for WikiLeaks. And then she picked these documents. She gave them to WikiLeaks in 2010. And those are the files that we were able to read. There's a most wanted leaks list that I write about in the book. And that is sort of what they call the guiding light or roadmap for Chelsea Manning. The only problem is there's no evidence to back up at all what they're alleging. And the other thing is that Chelsea Manning had entirely all the access that she needed to the military computer systems because of her security clearance. She didn't need any help or assistance from the mind of Julian Assange as a super hacker. So she could do this and not break any rules in the eyes of her supervisors. And she wasn't asking him about hiding herself and moving anonymously in the computer uh, in order to share documents. In fact, I write about this in the book that this came up in the court-martial. You would only know this if you followed the court-martial proceedings, but in the transcript, they... um, you look at all these times that the her defense attorney, David Coombs, questioned people, he would ask the military officers that were in her unit, some of them were um, privates just like Chelsea, they would say, uh, you know, did you, know, did you uh, download music that was unauthorized to your system? Did you download movies that was unauthorized to your system? Did you put software on your computer that was unauthorized? Because what would it do? It, it would mean that, um, well, I mean, we can think back to these antiques. They're antique machines now, Rania, but we can think back to well, the state of this and how easy it was to make your computer run slow and not work efficiently if you put all of these different music, movie files, or software files on your computer. But also in the desert, um, you get sand and all kinds of dust and the machine's running really hard. It's making sounds and all kinds of things. It runs badly. They didn't want soldiers to put unauthorized uh, files and software on their computers, but soldiers continued to do it all the time, whether they were allowed to or not. And she um, wanted to uh, be able to download her own software and movies without being detected. And so she talked to Julian Assange, allegedly, if that's even him on the other end of this chat, we don't know. It hasn't been confirmed. But if it was a conversation between her and Julian Assange, they allegedly discussed how she could move anonymously on the computer. And uh, a forensic examiner who was from the U.S. Army, who is from the same group of people that testified in the court martial, he said that she was probably trying to hide her tracks because she didn't want those files to be, det- she wanted her superior officer to come and um, discipline her for doing something against their orders. Well, I want to also add that when I mean, you make the argument that basically that all of these mainstream media outlets like the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, The Guardian, they all basically aided and abetted the U.S. prosecution against Assange. So I guess I'm wondering if you could maybe explain, of course, the irony here, which is that Assange did, in fact, engage in journalism. Yeah, the argument that I make that they aided and abetted the prosecution is based on the examples from the indictment itself and also from the proceedings in the extradition case. Uh, Judge Vanessa Baretzer Uh, It, for one, gives a lot of emphasis to this article that was published by CNN that claimed that Julian Assange had turned the Ecuador embassy into an election meddling outpost. And the reason why that is uh, uh, just totally without foundation is because when I looked at this article myself, I realized that they were using files that were the same files from... UC Global, Undercover Global, is a private security company that allegedly was collaborating with the CIA to spy on Julian Assange and his family and lawyers, et cetera, in the embassy. You find that they're looking at those same documents. They're looking at whatever dossiers. They're looking at uh, 
things that were written by these UC global uh, personnel. They're re- they're looking at the video footage, probably, and they decide that they're going to do a story about election meddling. Well, that doesn't make any sense, and that says a lot to you about the propaganda that comes out of these kinds of media organizations. Because, as I make clear, El País in Spain looked at the same files and documents, and they did a story which is the right story. They did the appropriate story about how someone who's a journalist was being spied upon in the Ecuador embassy, how a diplomatic building was being violated by this spying operation, how lawyers were having meetings and their attorney-client privileged information was being compromised, how journalists and visitors and academics and other people were arriving there, and they'd have to go through a security checkpoint where they'd be told they had to give up their phones and their electronics and their personal bags in order to go meet with Julian Assange. That's basically like prison. But then they would take their phones and they would image them. They would copy the contents and they would also create dossiers about the visitors that were coming to see Julian Assange. Mm. Um, and so that's one way they aided. Um, and the other great example is that David Lee and Luke Harding, they write this book about WikiLeaks and it's mostly gossip. It's mostly uh, um, really petty in the, its presentation about Julian Assange and what their collaboration on the war log documents and the State Department cables. But then one of the chapters, the chapter heading is the password for an encrypted file that has all 250,000 plus cables. And it's out on the internet. David Lee allows this to be published in a book, and now it is there out in the wild. And at some point in 2011, in the summertime, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a small group of journalists that make a connection, and they figure that this is the password. They find the file, they put it together, they're able to open it, and now, thanks to David Lee, everyone out there is accusing Julian Assange and WikiLeaks of endangering activists, and people who are involved in human rights work and those who were informants and those who were talking to diplomats at great risk to their livelihoods. And as it turns out, Julian Assange actually cared about this, was trying to prevent it from becoming a bigger crisis. We see video now of him contacting the State Department, trying to get Hillary Clinton on the phone, trying to tell somebody that you need to move into action. You've got to protect these people. This is not what I intended to have happened. They were taking great care with those documents. Thanks to David Lee, this is now one way that the U.S. government is able to demonize Julian Assange in the courtroom and one of the reasons why the extradition has been possible. Well, thank you, David Lee. In case you're watching, um, in case he's watching, I'm sure I'm sure he is. Uh, and then I wanted you. Okay, so obviously now we're at a we're in a situation where we've been waiting for this decision to come down, and it's been appealed on the on whether the UK will extradite Julian Assange to the US. And initially, there was an answer of no, right? Because one of the reasons being that the US prison system um, is so horrendous that. Julian Assange's mental health is not doing well. I mean, he's been basically being slowly killed before our eyes. Um, his health, he's not in good health. He's basically being tortured, kept in solitary a lot. Um, it would be worse in the U.S., uh, much significantly worse. So the argument is that he's actually at risk of, like, harming himself if he comes yeah. to the U.S., because that happens quite a bit in the U.S. prison system. However, there's also the issue of, like, is it even possible for Julian Assange to get a fair trial in the U.S., um, right? There's we've got over ten years of hateful propaganda against this person, calling everything, calling him everything from a traitor, even though he's not American, to uh, like a criminal, to a, basically a terrorist enabler, um, <laughs> to a Russian agent, right? A rapist, all of these things, um, to the point where is it again? I'll ask it again, and you can give me your answer. Is it even possible for this person? if he is extradited to the U.S. to get a fair trial? The answer is no. I don't think it's possible for Julian Assange to get a fair trial. And the reason is primarily because of the jurisdiction in which he's been charged. They actually call the Eastern District of Virginia the espionage courtroom. 
John Kiriakou has experience with it. And he has this really good quote in my book about it being called the espionage courtroom. The reason is because the jury pool, that is the locations where jurors are pulled from, is entirely made up primarily of people who work in the national security state. These are people who are part of top secret America as Bill Arkin and Dana Priest documented in great detail. They work for security contractors. They work for agencies that are part of the security state, like the CIA. They might work for the FBI. They might work for the director of national intelligence. Uh, They could work at the NSA. Um, They might uh, be part of Congress uh, staff. They could be lobbyists working for security or military industrial companies, whatever. These people live in that area and are the ones who would be asked to be jurors for a prosecution or a trial against Julian Assange. And on top of that, let's say Julian Assange decides, I don't want a jury. I don't think those people would be fair to me. So I'll take my chances with a judge and we'll just say the judge should interpret the law and I'll take my chances. That's what Chelsea Manning did. She actually did not have a jury uh, in her case. She decided to have a bench trial, which meant that Judge Colonel Denise Lind made the ultimate decision about whether she was guilty of crimes. And, you know, it's possible that that was the best choice because she did end up being acquitted of aiding the enemy, and that's very good. Julian Assange would be dealing with a judge who has a history likely of deference to national security agencies. Remember, Mm -hmm. we talked about earlier in this conversation about everything that the Obama administration did to fight the release of detainee abuse photos, to fight the release of force feeding videos at Guantanamo Bay, to fight the release of documents about the kill list and the drone program. And what happens is these lawyers from the Justice Department come in and they argue based on national security that all of this should be kept from the public. So this sort of a proceeding, this sort of a trial is the kind of thing where you don't have to guess what will happen. You know that the judge is going to take the side of the government and Mm -hmm. see that there are national security considerations that make it important for holding Julian Assange uh, as this example to the world. Well, Kevin Gastola, my co-host of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast, but more importantly, you've written this amazing book, Guilty of Journalism, all about the trial of Julian Assange, the ongoing prosecution against him, or as the subheading is, the political case against Julian Assange. Where can people buy your book? The book is over at sevenstories.com or censoredpress.org. And let me just say, uh, you know, very quickly, you know, I give you some credit in the book, Rania. Um, you know, you're one of the people who were supportive as I put the book together. And also just let me give a shout to uh, Project Censored and the people at Censored Press who gave me this opportunity. Uh, they actually weren't the first publisher that I turned to, but we won't go into that story. <laughs> but, but this publisher that stepped up was really great and they gave me all kinds of opportunities to learn about what it was to do. This is my first book that I've ever written. And I was really grateful that they were willing to take me on and teach me how everything worked. And then they were very collaborative. They let me do almost everything I wanted with the book. I was never told no. And they let me continue to make revisions and changes to the book, even past deadlines, which is not normal. Uh, for a publisher. So I think they deserve a lot of support. And if anybody is interested in what they do, Project Censored is always covering the way that uh, we need media literacy. And uh, it was really great to be able to work with them. Well, I will definitely include a link to uh, the book in the description. I really, I encourage everybody who's watching, who's listening to, to go check it out. Uh, Also just to be supportive of Kevin's work, because again, like this is, you really are the 
only journalist I can think of who has been on this story since the beginning, who has the right take on it um, and who is doing, I mean, who's really like on it for the right reasons as well. Um, and pushing back against just a tsunami of insane propaganda uh, that that's going, you know, that's really just been incredibly destructive to press freedom. And to journalists like us really at the end of the day, like you mentioned, this is, yes, it's a threat to journalists everywhere, but at the end of the day, it's really a threat to those people who don't have major institutions uh, to protect them and backing them up. So Kevin, uh, also uh, can I plug one more thing? Yeah, yeah, I was go go can ahead. I, I was going to mention Shadowproof. I was going to mention Shadowproof. Well, I'm ste- I'm stepping on a plug for my own media organization, which probably is not the best thing to do. But I did want people <laughs> to know um, that as they're going to be watching this video, there are screenings around the United States of this movie called Ithaca that features John Shipton, who is Julian Assange's father, and then Gabriel Shipton is the producer, and he appears later in the film. He's Julian Assange's brother. They're going mm-hmm. to be going to screenings throughout the country. Um, you should go to Ithaca.movie if you're interested. I really encourage people, if they watch this and are motivated, to go to a screening of the film. I've seen the movie. It's a good documentary. and uh, But also show your support for what Julian Assange's family is doing because they're doing the impossible. They're here in the U S trying to mobilize support for uh, getting the charges dropped. And I think if you can go out and see this movie and I, I am, I think I'm going to get a chance to actually moderate a discussion. Also I'm going to Berlin um, in, in the next day. Uh, by the time people see this, I will have already spoken at the disruption network labs conference with Stella Assange and Stefania Marizzi for a presentation before they screen the Ithaca movie there in Berlin, Germany. But uh, this is a really important, I think, to support Julian Assange's family as they come here um, because there are people who should be advocating for Julian Assange here who can't. They're afraid they're going to be arrested or harassed by the FBI. So Stella, who's his wife, won't come to the United States. And there are other people that won't either, like WikiLeaks editor-in-chief Christian Harafson. So anyways... And then you can find all my other work at shadowproof.com or thedissenter.org. And like Rania said before, we do a little podcast together, and it's been really fun for the last 10 years to be able to talk with you, Rania. Sam, Kevin, and I'm so proud of you uh, for for this book and for all of the amazing work you're always putting out. Uh, Everybody go check out Shadowproof. Go buy Kevin's book. Make sure you check out the movie Ithaca. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much and hope to have you back on the show soon.